Thank you. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast in book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Canadian artist Luke Cochin was an early convert to media arts some 50 years ago. He began utilizing computer technologies in 1984 to create interactive video and later with his immersive and interactive installations, panoscopic images, and his self-designed equipment, he helped transform spectators into visitors, actors, and inhabitants of his immersive worlds. He was professor of design at University de Montreal from 1989 to 2013 and a founding member of SOT, the Society for Art and Technology. He has since created some 50 installations and image series. His work is part of many major collections and he's been exhibited in major galleries worldwide, as well as earning numerous prestigious awards for his visual art. He's currently working on the creation of social virtual worlds. I met Luke over the last 20 years. My home in Vermont is um, practically at the border of uh, French Canada, and it's been my pleasure to visit La Sotte as it evolved and to meet Luke there and to see his lab and the many, many people that have collaborated with him. He has really done an amazing job with the technical side of it. Luke, welcome to Immerse. So, so uh, what, what are the two questions? The two questions are, what are you currently doing in your practice? And the other question is just, what was your first inspiration and how did it catapult you in life? In life, or? yeah. Because this book is filled with timelines. It has one timeline for each person I interview yeah. for their life. And then Kachin Yu has written a history of immersive experience from prehistory to the computer. And so we have then this long timeline before we all got here. We're sitting in La Sotte in Montreal. Luc, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Luc Courchain. I am this year in 2020. I'm 67 years old for now. I'll turn 68. Looking forward to it, actually and uh, had the chance to be one of the co-founders of SAT, which uh, was created close to 25 years ago. So I've been following this beautiful organization, how it evolved, how it, it brought together beautiful people, including you, uh, Charlie. So uh, my um, practice has been over the last 45, 50 years around art, visual art mostly, I'm a visual person although I understand the importance of sound. But uh, as a visual artist, I was really uh, captured by, by the idea of immersion, you know, being immersed. So I was born an installation artist, first as an exhibition designer. And when I grew up as an artist, when I gained the freedom to be an artist, I started to work with installation at the time where computer was starting to be part of the artist toolbox, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, especially for me with the Laserdisc. The Laserdisc captured my, my attention as, a, you know, the ultimate multimedia uh, medium because you could have images, sounds, videos in there, and each of these elements could be accessed, you know, in real time. Uh, so for me, it opened a whole set of possibilities which I wanted to explore. But because the, the computer was basically, you know, a typewriter and a TV, 
as an artist interested in space, I wanted to, to do installations where I would hide this to make the experience sort of more uh, comprehensive or more, uh, more, more about the subject or, the, or the, the artistic intention rather than the technology. And that was difficult to do, probably as you remember, in the, when, in the early days of computers. The computer was the interesting thing. So if you were trying to make art with it, it was uh, quite a challenge. So I come from there, you know, interest for immersion, using installation to explore, you know, the relationship between our bodies and nature, but through installation, through the media of photography, video, and these things, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, grew with the technology to the point, like everybody now, where we say, okay, technology is not the idea, it's just a tool, so we have to still have to have good artistic uh, intentions. That's very beautiful. Uh, I think that uh, what you've built here at Saat is quite remarkable in that it uh, makes it possible for so many people to operate in research and in production and as audience, as community. It educates funders, it educates the intellectual community. All of that is, I think, an interesting immersion because it means you are embedded now in a society where you started out just making experiences. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's an yeah. extra question, but I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, in fact, SAT is really Monique's idea, Monique Sabo's idea. Uh, I was just, you know, not too far from her to be able to, to benefit from its existence. But what Monique had in mind when she created the SAT was that, you know, uh, as opposed to the artist, the traditional artist center that we had in Montreal or in Canada, as you know, they were basically a pool of artists, you know, artists pooling together to acquire equipment, like sound production or video equipment. And Monique and I met, you know, when we were at the, on the board of a Prime Video, which was a, it was a video production artist-run center. And it was clear when she created the sound that in, in the mid-90s, all the production equipment had become fairly easy to acquire. And the, artists own their own production equipment. So the, the reason to gather as artists was not about equipment anymore, it was about ideas and sharing your network, your knowledge of a very fast changing creative environment. Computers, you know, change every six months, you know, operating systems evolve. The thing you did six months ago or a year ago were hard to play again on the newer machines and this and that. So we needed a, a support group, in fact. So it wasn't so much about technology or equipment as about ideas. And that's what she's been able to do. SAT has been able to grow through generations of technologies because it's about ideas. It's about how you can repurpose technology for uh, in a context where you're not trying to sell a product or you're not trying to convince anybody, you're just trying to to understand, you know, who we are as a, as a species in the sort of environment we live in, and so that's very critical and important these days. I see uh, you've succeeded. Going to my first question, I was wondering where your first inspiration came in terms of understanding excitement about immersivity. Well. Uh, the, the thing that is uh, very vivid for me is uh, my uh, visit of the uh, pavilion of the telephone at Expo 67, which was a, uh, an animated panorama. And I was 14 years old at the time, and it was very difficult to get into this pavilion because it was one of the most popular pavilions of Expo 67. So one day I said, this is the day where I'm going to go to the to, to see the, the show. And so I went up really early, was waiting in line when the gates opened, and then I ran to, to be in line for this, and I could see it finally. 
And I was really mesmerized by it. For me, it was, uh, at 14 years old, I did not understand the, the complexity of such a project. So I just thought, you know, this would be the, the kind of things that would be very familiar in my lifetime. You know, at 14, it's okay. I did not know at the time that I was going to be an artist or a designer. I just, uh, I just knew that this would be something that I would uh, experience in my lifetime. And uh, it turned out it was not so common, actually. I did not understand that at the time that it was very difficult, very expensive to produce. So, but in my lifetime, I have seen you know, uh, the arrival of computers, the fact that computers became multimedia. As soon as you can, uh, the computer got you know, uh, more powerful, faster, better uh, graphic cards. Suddenly, you, you saw QuickTime VR. You know, QuickTime VR was this sort of photographic panorama that appeared. And uh, gradually, the panorama, uh, or, or this idea of capturing the space around you, and this, the, not just like, like a field of view, but the whole space, uh, became more uh, doable, and uh, eventually, you know, we uh, ended up with, you know, full dome technologies where the dome of, of, of planetarium became basically computer screens, and and all uh, in the meantime, uh, the capture equipment uh, became immersive. Uh, I remember there was a company called Be Here. In the, I guess it was around 97, 98 that was starting to. Uh, appear on the web and they could with, with high definition still cameras they could capture a whole you know spherical environment so i was really fascinated by that but there was no uh, full dome at the time no vr well there were some vr but it was still uh, pretty exclusive you know uh, but um, so from there uh, technology developed and within five six seven years you only you had uh, choices of recording equipment that allowed somebody to, to do uh, immersive photography and video. And uh, I was riding this wave and trying to, to, to make it affordable for artists, for me and then other artists like me. And so I basically uh, tried to repurpose this equipment and created the, my panoscope from 98 to 2000. These two years are when I developed this thing. I found a lens developed by a Columbia professor in New York that had been, the license had been bought by a company called Remote Reality and they were marketing this for real estate. They were a big real estate, you know, owners, so they wanted, you could shoot, you know, a space and put it on the web. So I took their lens and adapted it to uh, the very newly introduced high-definition video camera and suddenly I could have an immersive video uh, in the shape of a disc and that was in, uh, in 99. And so I designed the projection system with a very wide-angle lens that I could take this image I got from the camera and project it straight into the dome and then get a single-channel immersive projection system. I, very, I was very proud of that. Actually, I premiered my, uh, my device at SIGGRAPH in New Orleans in 2000, in, in July 2000 or August. And uh, I was invited by ACM to go to their big show that next uh, spring in... Uh, San Jose, California, and I met with people there, and sort of triggered my career as a, as an immersive, you know, artist. It's a great story. It's a great I remember story. these things, uh, seeing them from New York. So, I mean, you were yeah. becoming more and more visible over that time. Yes, particularly through right. the trade press. Yeah, and uh, through the art world too. Yeah, to actually, think. one of the thing uh, we showed this project in, uh, you know, Wire, the magazine Wire, right. had something called the Wire Next Fest. And we were invited in Chicago for the their edition in 2005, I think. 
And uh, there was a, a film crew there that was very interested in our, our installation. And uh, they didn't know who they were or who they worked for, but they came every day, they would come and they asked questions and they look and take pictures and everything. And then we didn't hear about them anymore. And suddenly um, I got a call in 2009 from our family. Did you see the last Star Trek movie? I said, no. I said, you, your, your thing isn't there. So they had basically gotten their inspiration from the panoscope, you know, this like inverted dome. And they used it as a prop, as a prop in, in the 2009 Star Trek movie. That's where they train, you know, their, their, their kids in these immersive devices. So that was interesting how, you, you know, you can inspire. You don't know every time, you know, what is the output of what you do, but you do inspire people and things. That's fantastic. Yeah. There's one part of the more recent work that I'm particularly touched by, which is the... Uh, there's two communities that you've been reaching out in, amongst others. One is the the dome to dome, or connecting spaces, and the other is the reaching out into the medical and healing community. I wonder if you could speak a little about each. Yeah, that's that's the SAT. Uh, SAT has this beautiful, you know, instrument which is the dome, and the the whole uh, workflow to create content for the dome. And, of course, it was made for artists like me and others. Uh, we invite them in, we show them how it works, they go home, they work, they come back, and eventually when they're finished, we show this publicly, you know, every night there was a performance in the dome. But at one point, uh, Monique said, okay, let's, let's try to um, open up a little bit to the, the community beyond artists. And she happened to, uh, to meet the director of the hospital, very progressive director of the children's hospital, and to, they said, okay, let's... Let's put our people together, you know, your people, your artists with my uh, medical staff and see, you know, what happens. So, um, so a lot of artists from SAT spent time at the hospital, children's hospital, uh, and they found opportunities where they could apply, you know, expand their art, you know, their skills to, uh, to help, you know, uh, young uh, uh, patients, their parents, the, the staff, the, the doctors, the nurses, to see healthcare differently. And so it gave a, a, a number of projects, which some of them have been have been realized. But one of them, very spectacular one, was that um, with a, a therapy in with schizophrenia, the doctor and the artist uh, Louis Philippe and others, they had the idea to use the dome to try to uh, design an environment that would help them go beyond their limitations. You know, if they were scared of you know huge spaces, they would create these spaces and see how, when, what is the trigger when it starts to be menacing or something. Uh, but the, And the beautiful uh, concept there was that it's not the artist who designed the environment, it's the, it's the children themselves designed the environment that they thought would test their limits. So it was a beautiful model of, um, of therapy that was developed uh, in combination between artists, patients and their doctors. That's a remarkable story. I would add a sidebar because uh, there's a similar story here in Canada about using porta packs uh, in the far north where people were trying to document the life of Inuit and other and Nictucut communities. And the way it was done was by giving them the equipment so that they weren't subjects, but they were auteurs themselves. And this seems to me there's some very special spirit here in Canada about understanding the yeah. humanity of media. Well, there's another thing, you know, Robert Forget. Yes. You know Robert Forget? He was one of the sort of visionary of the National Film Board of Canada. 
And he was always the guy who basically saw new technology come in and he said, okay, how can we put this to use to give it like real um, you know, uh, meaning or real use? So when these portable camera and recording equipment came, uh, he created a videograph. And I know about it because I was a student at the Collège Cégeps Vieux Montréal, just next door on the corner of Saint-Denis and the Maison d'Ave. And the videograph, they basically built a small shack there they had the equipment and basically you could go there, anybody, and say, can I borrow a camera? Yes, sure. The condition was that what you shot with it was shared with the community. So you borrowed the camera, you did recording. I don't even think they asked you what you wanted to do with it. And then you edited something and you made it available in a library. So the library of Project Group, and it was for the NFB and, you know, uh, Robin and the NFB, a kind of uh, experiment on what people would do. And it goes back to your story about the North. If you give people equipment, then you will know what, how they look at the world. So that's a one example of how the NFB uh, in Canada has been working way beyond just documentation of, of the Canadian culture, you know, into explorations that uh, made a big difference for people like me. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate very much the opportunity to chat with you about what you've been doing, and uh, I'll keep you posted as this thing develops. But there's one, one thing I want to touch on Oh, please, you. you're quite welcome. So, uh, as I said, you told me you have a huge archive of yes. you know, video, audio files and that you are trying to, uh, to organize. And that's the thing I've been working on with my own archive, where basically I, I've been cleaning my, uh, my boxes, my crates, trying to, to sort all the projects, all the videos and the photos and the 3D objects and the sounds I had. And uh, my idea was to create uh, an archive in VR, where you basically, because I, originally I was an exhibition designer, so I, I take pleasure in organizing space with, with objects so that you can like create your story by wandering through this, the physical space. But I was taking pleasure at doing this in the virtual space, which is endless, you know, it, it has no boundaries, it has no gravity. So at first, the first uh, use of the archive was to position objects, you know, by hand, more or less, uh, uh, to create this path, the circulation. And then we realized there was just too many things. And uh, one of my colleagues uh, said, let's program an algorithm that will position things automatically. And uh, we tried that and it worked. And suddenly there was no, uh, no limitation in the numbers of assets or objects you could have. And uh, you, the algorithm can be pretty straightforward. Like you can say, okay, I want everything to be this size and arranged 90 degrees. So you can create the illusion of a, of a conventional exhibition space. But then we tried things that were, were not like that, that were more like creative in a way. And it was very interesting to see how the, the algorithm uh, outside of the human logic can create order in a different way and how interesting that is. And the most interesting mode was random. When we tell the computer, do anything, and then you see these beautiful accidents of in an image you know, uh, next to another one, things that could not have been planned, but that were beautiful in the sense that it created new, new sort of meaning with the same material. So the work I'm, I'm engaged in right now is, is called ontology. So basically, uh, an ontology is a model of the world. It's like we were talking about Borges, you know, his infinite library. It's a little bit like that, you know, you have so many books, but how do you order them? It's like you have so many things in your, in your archive, how do you order them? So the ontology, the design of the ontology is like the generative you know, concept where you say, okay, let's 
create this model of the world and then see what happens when we apply it to this body of work. And so that's what I'm working on. We're working on ontologies, sort of models of the world, and then putting you know, a database or assets in there and look at how it invites you in. And that's the idea of immersion. You know, that's the beauty of immersion, inviting people in. Beautifully said. Well, thank you so much for that last. I'm sorry, I didn't remember until you pointed out. That was out. your second question. <laughs> that was my second question. So thank you. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the interview and we'll continue. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. Immerse. And then an empty shell to fall back into the sea. <laughs>